This is The Finch. public health action, for the most part, has a high upfront cost for a long downstream positive benefit to them. And when making these decisions, you oftentimes have individuals or groups or organizations or the government who cannot look that far into the future because a lot of things are inherently political. This is episode nine. We're your hosts, Alex and Will. This isn't your typical podcast. In your typical podcast, you'd probably hear one or two perspectives, right, Will? Right. But we're giving you 16. You're going to be hearing from leading epidemiologists, sociologists, psychologists, historians, philosophers, economists, researchers, and the mayor. We dissect complex issues with a multidisciplinary approach. This is The Finch. Welcome back to the second part of our COVID-19 series. Time and time again, we've heard health experts are saying as things begin to open back up, we need to remember that we are still in a health pandemic. But who are these public health experts? Justin Ingalls is a professor of public health at the University of Georgia and a specialist in preventative treatment, the exact thing we did not do in this pandemic. In March, the CDC said the best remedy for COVID-19 is prevention. As states reopen their economies with insufficient testing and virtually no contact tracing, We look back on an interview we had in May with Dr. Justin Ingalls, the Director of Research of the Economic Evaluation Research Working Group. As a second wave of cases looms, the word prevention is no longer a thing of the past. There are deliberate measures we can take to brace ourselves. This episode of The Finch is on prevention. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at the university? Sure. So I am, I guess, technically my title is Assistant Research Professor in the College of Health. I teach, um, which is how I know Alex, uh, through Intro to Public Health to undergraduate students, and I also teach economic evaluation methods class to doctoral students at the moment. Economic evaluation is really kind of where I've spent the most time in my career working in those methods. I also, through the college and the research director, what's called the Economic Evaluation Research Group, which we provide more or less kind of a service that tacks on to many other studies. So there are many preventative inf- uh, interventions, whether they're kind of public health related or more social behavioral type interventions where people just want the cost effectiveness analysis or they want a benefit cost analysis. And so they will seek out a group like ours to come in and try to figure that out for them, given the evaluation they're already doing of their program. And then we also just do policy evaluation. We've done a lot of work for the state, Georgia Department of Public Health and a few other agencies very general policy evaluation sometimes involves kind of the cost effectiveness piece or something like that, but not always. And then more recently I finished my PhD actually right before I defended right before everything kind of went crazy at the university, which I'm glad I got that in before all that happened, but that is an epidemiology. Um, and I've focused on bereavement and the health consequences associated with bereavement and tried to tie in the idea of, the costs associated with that as well to try to pull in kind of my other economic expertise into that. So can we briefly talk about bereavement with, uh, yeah. on April 1st, uh, around 95% of Americans lived in a county that had a case and uh, it's estimated that 
by the end of this pandemic, most people will know someone who's had this uh, virus or has passed away from this virus. How has your work on bereavement uh, impacted how you're viewing this? And also, how can it be particularly relevant in these times to determine how people will cope? Sure. So this is kind of a, a big question in some ways. It is bereavement in general compared to other public health problems, thinking about, okay, what is the exposure that leads to poor health outcome? The loss of a loved one is one of those unavoidable exposures. There are many, there are many exposures we focus on where the idea is, we maybe can't eliminate it entirely. You know, you're never going to change everyone's behavior. You're never going to be able to remove all environmental pollution, whatever the exposure may be. But if you can just reduce as much of that as possible, you will prevent a lot of problematic downstream um, health outcomes. You can't really do that with loss. Loss will happen. And so instead of it being something more like primary prevention, where you simply try to remove the exposure entirely, you have to try to manage the, the poor outcomes that are associated once that exposure actually occurs. So it's a little bit kind of using some of the public health terms. It's a little bit more tertiary prevention, more toward the, okay, that this has happened. How can we help people deal with this and lead to more, you know, a, a more positive health outcome for everyone who's experiencing um, uh, important losses in their life? So it's unavoidable. And honestly, in the moment, there are deaths occurring to COVID-19, but plenty of people are dying from other things as well. Just like the normal rhythms of life, there is a loss occurring all the time and people are always having to deal with it. I think the biggest challenge right now is the changes that have occurred to society, I imagine are, and I believe are probably making it harder for people to cope with loss than it would have been without all of this happening. And so some of the reasons that may be, one of the, one of the things I talk about in a public health class is when we think about many of the things that are associated with poor health, whether it's low socioeconomic status, which might just be low resources, uh, or it's um, loss, or it's whatever it may be, the link between that thing and poor health is oftentimes stress. Those things increase stress, stress we now have a lot of evidence what it does biologically to the body in terms of inflammation and in terms of the body's uh, reduced immune responses so what really <clears throat> is helpful with something like bereavement is something that buffers that stress something that can sit in between the stress occurring maybe limit the stress but also try to limit the ability of the stress to impact people's um health. And so some of those things that have come out of my research that is very much in line with others, are there's really two big things. One is physical activity. People just being physically active seems to have a huge impact on their post or their bereavement and post-loss experience. And so especially if you look at people who have lost more close loved ones, one of the key kind of interactions that really seems to impact people's long-term experiences with that is people who are more physically active seem to be better overall. That's just what it is. And I don't mean exercise even. It's not just about exercise and picking up weights or running or doing something like that. It's just being out and being active. The second issue that I think is important is that what really happens when people are grieving and what the models that have been developed help to explain what that positive grief would be or something that ends up leading to a more positive outcome is what's called a, the, the dual process, which is oscillating back and forth between grief oriented responses and restoration oriented responses. So grief oriented responses are the, I'm sad, I cry, the funeral itself is a grief oriented response. Thinking about that loved one, 
trying to deal with those emotions. The restoration-oriented activities are things like physical activity. They're things like getting out, getting your mind off of it, doing something productive. If, if you've lost a spouse, starting to figure out how you're going to live and manage finances or whatever it may be post having that loss. And so people do the best when they can oscillate between those and they don't get stuck in one of those. You don't want to get stuck in restoration and never deal with the grief. You don't want to get stuck in the grief and never deal with moving on in life. I, I, I think this, what's happened to our society is there are people that are more isolated now. They're lonelier. They don't have those social connections. Social connections are another big buffer between stress and poor health outcomes, just like physical activity is. When you cut people off, they're lonelier. They maybe get stuck in grief more. And, and they're, stuff, they're stuck in that grief-oriented response, and they're going to have a worse outcome overall. Or if they can't get out and socially interact with people, or they can't, they're less likely to be able to be physically active in some way that works for them. Kind of that restoration side, they may not be able to be in that. Or if they're not able to have a funeral, they may get stuck more on the restoration side and never deal with the grief. And so I can imagine people getting stuck in one side or the other and not being able to deal with it appropriately. And that would be heightened by what's happening now. And so it's not just losing someone to COVID-19 that I think is the problem. It's losing someone, period, during this and not being able to go through the normal channels of grief that I think could have a long-term impact on the health and well-being of really anyone in this society, whether they've lost someone from COVID, which could be a, a particular type of grief, or just lost someone to any normal thing where people, where, where people have a loss in their life. A major point of contention right now is that people with other health concerns other than COVID-19 um, have a tough decision to make whether they should get to the hospital or not. Earlier this week, we spoke with Dr. Neil Priest, who is the Chief of Emergency Medicine at St. Mary's Hospital, and he, he recommended that given if you had an other health concern, you should still go to the hospital. Yet despite that, hospital traffic in both Athens hospitals has reduced around 30 to 40 percent. And given that two out of three Americans have underlying health conditions, is this worrisome to you? It's usually worrisome for a couple of reasons. One is the idea that people aren't getting things taken care of for sure. When there is something that really needs to be taken care of now, it, it may not be an emergency, but it may be urgent and they're avoiding that, that has the potential to have major downstream effects where that condition, because it's not being dealt with now, becomes far more expensive down the road. And, and this, is, this is not because of um, something like, again, removing the exposure, but this is dealing with those exposures and those health outcomes or those health conditions people already have, as you mentioned. I think the other concern I have is that across hospitals across the board basically cut off all elective activities. Um, and a lot of those are, are, are surgical and related, uh, are surgically related. So even if it re they require an inpatient stay, they can still be considered elective. Like they're still serious, but they're things like getting a knee replacement, hip replacement, something like that, that are considered elective and they've cut those out. That is a huge source of revenue for hospitals. In fact, some, some research has been done for kind of the average hospital suggests that in a given month, as an example, a hospital may have $6 million buffer out of those in terms of revenue above expenses. And that helps to cover losses in all other areas of the hospital. EDs tend to have very large losses on, in general. And so that normal $6 million is super important to keep the hospitals going. That gets cut. And a lot of the research suggests that could be cut entirely. That could be cut mostly just by cutting out the elective services. So now hospitals have less of a buffer. And then if you throw in all of these COVID-19 cases, which may be even more expensive to treat, 
than how they will be reimbursed. And so there, there was the bill that was passed that provided some extra reimbursement for the patients, but it still may not be enough. It means that in those kind of inpatient areas where patients are staying, not only have they lost that, that elective buffer, they're also maybe not having enough money to cover all the additional costs associated with the PPEs and having to have more people on staff and just everything that goes on to try to handle this appropriately in the hospital. So now you're talking about a loss out of this part of the hospital every single month. Can no longer cover where losses are occurring otherwise in the hospital. Hospitals are really going to struggle through that. Hospitals are already laying off people in some cases, maybe not in Athens yet, but other places. So once we are getting back, it may be even hard for people to get some of the services they need that they have been putting off because hospitals are going to have to readjust all of this. And again, I think that could have some major downstream effects as well. So maybe that helps us deal with COVID-19 now, but unfortunately, it's likely going to have additional um, you know, underlying kind of just tentacles that are reaching out and causing poor health across the population simply because of people's fear. Another reason why people haven't been seeking treatment is that is simply the cost of healthcare. A lot of proponents of universal healthcare, most notably um, Senator Bernie Sanders, have pointed that this pandemic highlights the inadequacies in the American healthcare system. The majority of Americans rely on employer-based healthcare, and with another four million or so people filing for unemployment this week, uh, nearing Great Depression levels, a lot of people are losing their healthcare coverage. Can you tell us about how a single-payer system works and the advantages and disadvantages of this system, particularly as it relates to COVID-19? So I always think about our health insurance system as a patchwork. We, unlike any other country, have, I don't know how many different systems in place at the moment, but we have an employer-based system. And, some, and there are some countries that have a primarily employer-based system, but they still guarantee health insurance for everyone else, kind of through that employer-based system and filling in the gaps we needed. We have Medicare, which is, which is a state, state in the, in the general sense of the word state, funded system that looks like what other countries have as well, but it only covers the older population. We have Medicaid, which is this kind of trying to cover the gap in terms of, of, of poorer individuals, especially children. We have the VA, which is a completely socialized healthcare system, which is much closer to this pair type system, which is not just paid for by the state, but is also all the employees are state run, and that covers a certain part of the population. So we have all these different patchwork is, patchworks trying to cover everybody, but employer base being the biggest one. So when any one of those fail, our other patches aren't set up in such a way to try to handle the people that are falling through very well. And what that means is as patches fail, you can imagine this patchwork quilt that sort of covers at the best, it's covered 90% of people recently. You just open up a hole and people just start falling through. And, we, and we're not set up in such a way to try to expand these patches to cover those just because of that. And the employer-based one would be the biggest issue. And it comes out of a whole history of, of, of creating some tax advantageous situations for this. And now I think we will start to see more and more, oh, that just doesn't work. And, and, and we already started to see that with people shifting more towards consultant type work where companies could hire, you could get a good job, but they don't have to offer you healthcare benefits. And so people in consulting jobs are already struggling to figure out, well, how in the world am I going to afford health insurance, especially as the ACA marketplaces began to collapse. So the idea is, can we not just come up with a single patch to cover everybody? The only way to do that is to have one organization paying for all of healthcare. It doesn't mean we have to go all the way to a fully socialized system like they have in the UK, where it's not just that one central organization, their government pays for everything, 
but all of the healthcare providers for the most part are also public employees. We don't have to go there. Germany doesn't do that. Um, France doesn't really do that. They actually have multiple kind of insurance systems that exist in theirs, but everything is regulated centrally. It's there's something in place to ensure that essentially everyone can be covered and to guarantee that. And so we could figure out a way to make our patchwork be something that maybe there is still some sort of employer-based system there, possibly people like that, but maybe we could create one large patch, which has one primary single pair, which is the U S government that can fill in the gaps for everybody else in some way. And as the sort of employer-based system begins to fall apart, perhaps that will just catch more and more people. But right now our government pays directly for a bunch of different patches and again, it's just not set up to try to expand any one of those to catch everybody. And so I don't know that we have to go all the way at the moment to single payer, but I think we need to have a strong single payer somewhere in the system for one large health insurance program that could begin to cover everybody who's not getting what they need through their employer, which is, as this is showing, going to become fewer and fewer people who are going to be adequately covered under that employer-based system. So I like the idea of a single payer in some ways. I don't think we have the Still don't think we have the momentum to go all the way there and get rid of everything else, but we can at least come up with a strong central individual pair, which would be the government, to try to fill the gap for as many people as possible. And I think that's what will really work because having this patchwork system just becomes so obvious when things like this happen about how it is that system overall, thinking that it's just one large system made up of a bunch of little smaller systems is not able to quickly cover and fill in the gaps appropriately. This pandemic has also highlighted the importance of vaccines. And while we don't have a current vaccine for the coronavirus, we still, uh, it's made us realize how um, crucial vaccines are to keeping our population healthy. Vaccinating every child in the US against the 15 deadliest diseases would cost around $250 billion. But the cost of treatment for these conditions far surpasses this amount. Can you talk about the importance of preventative medicine from both a public health and economic point of view? Absolutely. So yes, um, vaccination of um, something like COVID-19 would be extremely important in preventing all of these horrible things we're seeing happening, a lot of the deaths that are occurring, that sort of thing. It would be crucial ultimately to everyone feeling safe to go back to the world as it is. And that's a long way off of vaccination for this. In general, vaccinating provides a, again, a, a large safety net that limits the number of people who can be exposed and have a poor health outcome and have all those high costs associated with it. It does cost a lot upfront. Every public health action for the most part has a high upfront cost for a long downstream positive benefit to them. And when making these decisions, you oftentimes have individuals or groups or organizations or the government who cannot look that far into the future because a lot of things are inherently political. Things are, I need to see what the benefit of this is now. I can't wait 10, 20, 30, 40 years to see all of the benefits of this investment. And so what we end up happening a lot of, ha happening a lot of times is treatment in general, if you think about something like diabetes, you can see some sort of amazing strong impact on diabetes if you just pump money into treating those who have it now you're like look this is working if you try to pump your money into preventing diabetes it takes a long time to see that benefit and so if you're just trying to get people supportive of things that investments that seem to to really have an impact 
it makes a lot more sense to just pump them into treatment. It's far more expensive in the long run, but people can see an immediate impact to that. But our inability sometimes to step back and look at the long-term picture of these things is, is such that we just don't end up investing in those things that make a lot more sense. And so unfortunately, whether it's vaccination or whether it's just primary prevention in general, investing in things that limit our exposure to all of the things that can cause us poor health, we tend to just focus instead more downstream and say, well, if we pump money into this now, look at this, this amazing benefit that can occur now. Not realizing that if we pump money up front, if we really push vaccination, if we develop vac vaccines, if we really push primary prevention in general, we will see much greater benefits down the road. Now, the, 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 the persons who made the decision to uh, invest now may not be able to claim success for those benefits farther down the road because they may not still be the ones in charge. They may not still be the ones making decisions. But as a society, we would, we would be much better off if, if we could just invest up front as, as in, into primary prevention and vaccination. At every level of the uh, government, uh, the response to this pandemic has been varied and, and sort of confusing for people to follow. Uh, Governor Kemp opened parts of businesses on Friday, and then uh, subsequent Monday, more businesses are expected to open. And this actually followed criticism by Trump, who uh, praised him for doing so earlier. And then even at each county, the response has been varied with differences between Athens and, and Oconee and, and neighboring counties. The mixed messages at these different levels has caused many Americans to feel uncertain about what is right and what is wrong. What level of government is responsible for public health and especially in times of distress, who should citizens listen to? Well, so in theory, the state, the states themselves are responsible for public health in theory. And that just goes back to the way the constitution was written and how it's been interpreted since that point. Essentially, if the federal government is not given direct power for something, then it falls to the states to have that power. And that's been interpreted to mean a police power, which can be both in terms of policing crime and policing the things that, that the ALS essentially, in terms of our health. Now, that's not to say the federal government doesn't have an important role. And in fact, leadership from the federal government, funding from the federal government can have an extremely large impact on these things. They may not, the federal government may not really have the power to go in and make these decisions about shutting businesses down, about sheltering in place, about doing some of those things, but a consistent message from a federal government whomever that may be in the federal government about what should be done or what best practices are. And essentially trying to fund the most important things can be very effective. Then it trickles down to the states to ultimately implement and make those decisions. But I think we have seen when there are inconsistent messages from on top, very difficult to discern, hard to figure out what the best thing to do is, kind of the most visible leader, leadership in our country, then it makes it really hard for states to decide what to do. Some states have, because of a variety of political reasons, have found it very easy to put these things into place. Others, it's taken a lot longer. And every state is so different that you end up seeing very different outcomes in states. You see something like Florida waiting so long to shut things down, also not having that many cases given their size. So it's hard to say what's going on there. You could say, look, you don't need to have these extreme measures put into place, but these extreme measures are probably needed in other locations. There's probably something about Florida, the lack of people needing to take public transportation, um, how well a lot of people are already practicing social distancing there long before you actually had the 
governor shutdowns in the state that have helped them out, but that doesn't work anywhere else. And so it's, it's just, it, it, and then people will look at that and say, look, you know, we didn't really need to do any of this, but maybe that needed to happen other places. And so when you then have this message from the top, it's, it's hard to understand what we should be doing. And state governors are trying to make their best decisions. And then local governors are, are local mayors and others are trying to make decisions. And you don't have a strong top-down approach. It just makes it hard on everyone. And, and really local governments, honestly, even when this was passed in Athens, whether that was enforceable or not, shelter in place, who knows whether it was enforceable or not. It was important for Mayor Kelly Gertz to do that. And that did lead to a huge change in behavior in Athens. And most businesses complied with that. I think there was one lawsuit um, by one arm, uh, uh, essentially uh, gun uh, armory, Clyde Armory, against the, the mayor and the government for that, which ultimately got thrown out. They were deemed essential and could stay open. But in general, most people complied and it probably worked pretty well in Athens. But whether that was enforceable or not, it probably really wasn't in the end. People probably could have still done what they, what they wanted. And some people did for the most part do what they wanted, but enough people followed suit that it seemed to work. And so the idea of who is responsible, I think it's a tough one. And who has the power, that's a tough one. Sometimes it's just how much do we trust our leadership involved? And if they say to do this and we trust them enough, then we do it. And that's all that's really needed, whether the power really rests in that, in that group or not. Who should we listen to? We should be listening to people who um, have the expertise to talk about this. We should listen to people who, um, we should listen to our local leaders, especially when our local leaders are well-informed. Um, in theory, we should be able to listen to all levels of our government about what to do. But I think things like this show us that many levels of government are ill-prepared to provide a consistent message and to make timely decisions about the best way to proceed. And, I, and that's popping up all the time. It's popping up when you have a, a, a governor in a state say, we're going to open a bunch of things back up. Some may make sense to slowly reopen because there's so little contact individually between people. But at the same time, there are other businesses that were open where there's clearly going to be a ton of very close contact between people, those businesses. And so it's just like, well, what's the strategy here? What's going on? That's a very inconsistent message about, about what's important and, and how this should work. And it's just without that leadership from the top, helping to spread the message about appropriate ways to maybe slowly reopen and get back to work or get certain people back to work and certain businesses back, it becomes really hard at any level to do who should we be listening to and who does have the ultimate authority. I, at this point, I, I think we're all going to just be kind of playing around in the dark and among the edges a little bit and waiting to see what happens in places where these decisions are made. And I, I mean, ultimately, I, I, it's, hard, it's hard to say. All right. Uh, thank you for your time to yeah. do this interview. If you could give some advice to the people at home, what would it be? So I would say continue to practice the, I, the ideas of social distancing and the ideas of sheltering in place as much as you can. Um, I would never tell everyone that they need to carry out the exact same practices because everyone's lives are different. And some people have to go to work at this point and some people need to get out more and some people, there's just, there's just different needs across the place, but at least those of us who are able and can continue to do the things we need to do and be productive and can do that without having a lot of direct contact or maybe without having any direct contact, we should continue that as long as possible because that will help. Even if other people 
are kind of either required to, forced to, decide to have more close contact with others through whatever means, if there's a large enough group of people, and I think that's what's going to happen in Georgia, even with things reopening, there's plenty of people who are going to continue to practice this, so the social distancing and sheltering in place, even as businesses open. That may ultimately mean that this decision to reopen may not have that big, that, that big of a negative consequence because so many people are probably going to say, hey, it's worth it just to continue to keep up what we've been doing. We can keep this up for longer until more is known about how to successfully treat it or before there's testing in place or, or, or better, more of a system of contact tracing and, and being able to find out who an exposed person is potentially exposed to this. Like once those are in place, then maybe other, as others of us can start to say, well, we can get back to some normal things. But we should be slow and cautious in doing that. And we should continue to listen to people who are measured in their response and have at least some knowledge about how all of this works and are less politically motivated in talking about what we should and shouldn't be doing. And so I would just say, if you can, continue to carry out these social distancing practices as much as possible. Find ways to connect with people alternatively as much as you can. You know, don't isolate yourself. Um, you know, don't fall into this loneliness trap that will unfortunately ensnare some people because of, of what's going on, but just continue to do as much as you can, keeping as safe you can, especially those who may be vulnerable around you to this virus. Um, and, you know, just keep that up and try to, as much as possible, spread truthful messages. Try to do what you two are doing, which is finding avenues to try to spread good information about what's happening. Um, to as many people as possible. Because ultimately, I think it's a lot of those citizen, individual types of actions that may end up being far more effective than sometimes the, the government decisions at whatever level are, those are occurring. It may be far more effective just our own individual behavior. Um, honestly, so my final thing is a lot, there's been a lot of talk about how off the models were early on, potentially, and even now, about how many deaths there'll be and how many infections. Part of the reason that is, is because I think everyone in public health underestimated how quickly so many people would take on the idea of the importance of social distancing and sheltering in place. Like, I think most of us in the public health community believed it would take strong government action to actually put those measures into place. But people started doing that so early, just on their own, because they understood how important this was. And so that individual behavior is impossible to account for in all of these models. It just is. And so that potential has had some of the profound effects we have seen where we have not had the as nearly as bad of a rapid spread of disease and not nearly as many deaths as maybe there had been feared by models that were even trying to take into account social distancing and sheltering in place. So we, as individuals, as communities, as people, have the ability to have a very strong impact on this, that sometimes when our governments maybe are failing us in those ways, we, we, can, we can continue to practice those things. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Finch Podcast. If you're interested in being an underwriter, email us at thefinchpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And if you like our work, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at The Finch Podcast. Who holds the master key to reopening the economy? Next time on The Finch, we talk policy. Policy.